you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles tonight to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be looking tonight at Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. We do want to pray before we get started. Father, we are grateful that we have someone to come to who can be a help in our time of need. Father, we do pray for the Treadaway family. Pray especially for Wayman, Lord, that you would heal his body, God, that you would make him whole. Lord, allow all things to come out well in this procedure. And Lord, we pray for Justin. He's there with him. Father, we pray for the preaching of the word tonight, God, just through the foolishness of using sinful men that you have claimed for yourself, Lord, to proclaim your word. Father, we pray, God, tonight that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we may see and believe. Father, we give you great glory for who you are. Lord, so many busyness throughout our days, so many things clamoring for our attention. Lord, let us just set our mind on things above tonight. Lord, to lay aside all these necessary at times, but yet not glorious as you. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would come and meet with us, God, that you would make your presence known. Lord, that you would teach us by your spirit, and then, Lord, by grace, Give us hearts of obedience, Lord, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you look at chapter 3 of Philippians, Pastor Chuck preached on the resurrection. As he was preaching, I was somewhat fearful he would go to this passage because I'd already lined it out and started dividing it out. But Paul there talking to those in Philippi, he begins to talk starting in verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are in the true circumcision, who worship in spirit in the spirit of God, and the glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I counted all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and he may and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So tonight we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11. It started in here, you know, with Easter behind us, at least speaking so much of the calendar. Our lives really do operate on a clock and a calendar, as Americans at least. Maybe there's a society somewhere. I've been in Africa two or three times. They're probably a lot better than we are at managing their time because when they take a break they're in no hurry to get back to work when they go to work they're in no hurry to take a break so they seem to be structured with a more relaxed atmosphere but for us everything operates on the calendar when easter's over with the next thing comes there's things out there that are just motivating us to go and to go 
And I know you may say, well, Easter for the true Christian doesn't ever go away, and it shouldn't. The born-again believer doesn't really have a normal to turn to. If we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, as it says in Colossians 1.13, then our life should be anything but normal. It actually should be an oddity to the rest of the world. We're being called to deny ourselves and to die daily from Luke 9.23. This is everything but normal for everyone else. I don't know if you've ever had situations where the Lord has convicted you of something you've done or said to someone in your workplace. Unfortunately, I, I receive that quite often. And I have to return in repentance and ask for forgiveness for those individuals. It's always mesmerizing to me the look on other people's faces when you repent before them, when you own your own sin and ask for people's forgiveness that you've offended or sinned against. Sometimes it bothers me that I have to do it, but I find there's no end in it. There's no end to the conviction. There's no ease until you've done what you're obeyed, or excuse me, called to obey the thing that the Lord wants you to do. So tonight I hope we'll just stop for a moment, not be on that treadmill of life and that we would savor just the goodness of the Lord that's in these passages. What caused me to look to this passage is going into the Easter weekend. I just began to think over and over. I knew, knew it was in the scriptures and knew about where it was in the New Testament, but just the phrase that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So tonight as we look into this about attaining the resurrection, really as the Christian, that's our goal. That's what we're headed toward to obtain the resurrection. First, let's look at the transition of treasures. It's really trading our treasures for Christ. Verse 70 says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. The word but there, and I'm everything but an English major. I'm not the grammar police. As I would write my papers in seminary, my daughter who has a degree in English, I would give those papers to her and I was like, could you look over these? And could you correct those so when I turn them in, I don't get a lot of red ink back? And her being very tedious, I actually got a scholarship for English and took them and she went over one of them as I turned it into Dr. Ken Easley there at Mid-America and he handed it back and I got an A minus and I showed her the paper. I said, hey, you, you missed some things. And she took great offense to that and said, I did not miss anything. And she took the paper back and she began to quote rules and laws in English, why that? And so she produced that and she said, I'm going to go to seminary with you and I'm going to talk to Dr. Easley. I said, I have an A minus on this paper. You're not going anywhere. Because <laughs> the reality was A minus was premium for me. So I said all that not to be humorous, but to say the word but is a coordinated conjunction. We're thankful for Google. Use to connect ideas at contrast. But more than a grammatical connector, here the word but designates a turning point in the Apostle Paul's life, the transition, the conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Paul was once treasuring self and all that he had within himself. Now we see his status changed, that he's treasuring Christ alone. Maybe you can be familiar with that thought in your own life. When at one time everything in your life was really all that you could heap together. Whatever skills or talents you have, whatever abilities, we're all wired different, we're all made different, created in the image of God, but given different things, we all bring value. And in that, you sort of hoard up those things for yourself. Paul says those things, he goes, but, and then he goes to say, whatever things were gained to me. 
I read the first part of Philippians because Paul said, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So is Paul being arrogant or is he being honest? He says, you have some things you're proud of. Let me make a list for you. He says, circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Paul said, I'm not just at the top of the Israelite list. I'm educated at the top of the list. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Quite an odd thing to brag about to the church. Paul saying, you want to talk about zealous? I was put into death your family members. I was put into death other people that were followers of Christ. He says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. The key there, is there any righteousness that is really in the law? For only one man kept the law perfect, so Paul can say, found blameless, but isn't really ironic to say, even though one of the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not commit murder, and Paul says, hey, I was persecuted in the church, but I was found blameless. This list stacked up of items for things we could do, things we could say about ourselves. So it would be a different list, but we can comprise skills and trades, intellect and other things, accomplishments that we'd put in. But Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, he goes on to say those things. I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Say, what would ours look like today? Maybe it's what family you're from. We've moved many times to many different states, and I find it interesting. I, and many of you know where I work at a more somewhat prestigious private school, and people always say, well, Mr. So-and-so built this entire building. I'm like, I wouldn't know if he's standing right here. I don't want to be disrespectful, but that means zero to me. You know? And people always say, do you, do you know so-and-so? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> I'm clueless to who they are. And it just really deflates the whole purpose of the conversation, doesn't it? You know, sometimes I find myself doing that here if I start describing things. If I go somewhere else, and someone may say, where do you go to church at? And I'll say, I go to Christ Church in New Albany. And if their eyes doesn't light up and that doesn't look too impressive, I say, have you ever heard of Media Gratier? You know, I'm willing to play the card. I'm excited about being part of that, even though I'm a far extended back, first pew, pew at the front kind of part of that. These things we have, maybe it's not your family or who you're from. Maybe it's your university you attended. I can't even claim mine anymore. It's Memphis State. They changed the name to University of Memphis. Only John Didier knows that, and that tells you what age bracket we're in. You know? And they've done away with everything. There's no, no glory there in it. Or maybe it's the degrees you've earned. When I started college straight out of high school, I had lots of ambitions. I also had lots of evil-heartedness. I had lots of things I was interested in, and one of them was not the things that were printed on the pages of those books. So I successfully had a grade point average of 0.98 my first semester. But so you won't be too discouraged with me, I brought it up to 1.25 before I quit. You know, and I was just playing around. I realized then, like, no one gets on to you in college if you don't turn papers in. If you make Fs on tests, they never raise an eyebrow. 
because they know next semester you can pay the other three or four or five hundred dollars and take the class again. But when I got out of there and I got married and I got one child and I worked in a hot factory out in the sun all day long, I thought this is not going to work out like I had planned life to work out. So I enrolled in a two-year college and took industrial engineering and I made 4.0, stayed on the president's list the entire time. Why? Because it was hot on President's Island where I painted trailers. That was my motivation. But I found glory in that, that I'd made, I, got, I still got the letter. The other day I'm trying to unearth things in my desk to find things I need and I run across this old letter from State Tech Institute of Memphis from the president. Congratulations, you're on the president's list. The school doesn't even exist anymore. Those worldly things have no value. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's social economic status. Maybe it's self-achievements. Maybe you've went from rags to riches. You could be the Heisman winner. And believe it or not, even sometimes it's where we think we rank in our church. It's where we think we Maybe don't see ourselves up there with Pastor John and Pastor Chuck, but we're pretty close. Or we're teaching something or we're doing something. Paul says everything he counted lost just for the sake of obtaining Christ. The word lost zemus is to suffer loss of something which one has previously possessed with the implication that the loss involves considerable hardships and suffering. To suffer loss of something with the implication, loss, the loss involved considerable hardships of suffering. It's not losing your favorite necktie in your closet. It's not I had $2 in my pocket, but somewhere I've lost it. This is through trials and tribulations type loss. And Paul says, I've counted it all loss for the sake of Christ. The term for the sake of is actually one Greek word. It's a marker of a participant constituting the cause or the reason for an event or state it's because of or an account of account of Christ because of Christ I was willing to undergo these sufferings we know this as church members we know it mentally Christ is a sufficient enough treasure he's the pearl of great price but are we willing to forsake all are we willing to Transition from what we have, and I'm not talking necessarily about your home, but your home could be included. Maybe it's just all those things we hold more near and more dear than we hold Christ. Second thing is the experiential knowledge of Christ. Paul talks about in verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them but rubbish. More than that, more than all these other things I'm talking about, more, more than these status things, everything, I count all things to be lost in the view of. You know, if this was written by someone we didn't know, knew had some flaws, then all might be questionable. But since this is written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, by the Apostle Paul, that his life is transparent out before us in the Scriptures, through trials and sufferings, through beatings, the confirmation of the Spirit tells us that this all simply means all, everything. There was not anything that Paul was clinging to. He had laid all things down. 
And we think about that sometimes. I go through these lists when I'm studying passages like this. I'm thinking, what have I not laid down? I think many times it's my comfort. What if the Lord had told us, several of us, we had to leave Christ Church and we had to go to XYZ Church. I won't pick one because if I do, that'll be somehow end up being offensive. But it doesn't operate like this church. They don't have corporate prayer time on Sunday morning. They don't sing the hymns. And to be discreet about it, I went to another church on Saturday night to go to church with a relative and it was different. And I, and I talked to Brother Barry Steele about that and I, and I worked through it as I sat there. I said, I don't want to be critical because, you know, God has people here too. I realize sometimes I just like what I like. I like it when I like it, and I like it how I like it. Surpassing knowledge, the value, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. The Greek word to know, gnosko, is not a verb here, but it's actually a form of a noun, which means to know experientially, or by experience to by personal involvement. He's, he's noticed this is an experience that Paul's talking about. It's not... And I know we get nervous when we start talking about we're having an experience, but is there really any way to be born again, to be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son and not have an experience? We had testimonies the other night in our fellowship when we had a baptism about how lives have been changed, that two people had experienced a whole nother lifestyle been brought about. We experienced how we deal with one another differently as I was talking earlier about having to repent to people to say I'm sorry for how I conducted myself or allowed things to get upsetting within me we experience this working of the Holy Spirit in our life we're not over here and Christ is over here we're at the doctrine of the union with Christ we're in Christ we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit there's no way possible not to experience it it doesn't mean we do something strange or irregular but it does mean that we know that life is different. John 17, 3 says this, this is eternal life. That they, Christians, people that are in Christ, may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Paul goes on to write, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He says the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus because of Christ Jesus, he's the whom I've suffered the loss of all things. He says, for whom I have suffered. Notice Paul does not say because of whom. He says, for whom. Some would say because of Christ or because of my following Christ, this has happened to me or because my being a Christian, I've persecuted. But Paul doesn't word it like that. He says, for Christ, I have suffered all things. A willingness involved in that statement. A desire to follow the one that has met him on the road to Damascus. To bring about this internal change from once a persecutor of the church, now a lover of the church. Paul indicates a deliberate forfeit of all his gains. All of his self-improvements just for to gain Christ. In Matthew 19, 27-30, just reading it in a paraphrase, Peter says, we've left all. We've left homes, we've left families, we've left everything. Jesus says, all that's left everything will receive many times more. That actually could be translated a hundred times more 
and the kingdoms. Jesus also goes in and say in verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Do we think sometimes when we're forfeiting things for the sake of Christ, do we think that we're losing ground or losing substance? Really to decrease, as John the Baptist says, is to increase. If we increase Christ, if the first will be last and the last will be first, can really anyone take anything from us that has not given us greater gain in the kingdom of heaven? Paul goes on to talk about that he suffered the loss of all things and he counts what he lost as rubbish. That word in the original Greek is the word skubalon. It's used one time in the entire New Testament. It's used right here. It comes from two compound words, a root word. It means that what's cast out to the dogs. But actually this word could be translated useless or undesirable. Refuse or even manure. It's really how Paul sees all these things that it maybe beforehand, maybe someone that he was serving as a Pharisee would look at Paul and said, you have left everything, everything you worked for, everything you set aside, everything that meant anything to all of us, you've left that to follow this one person. You've left that to receive beatings. You've left that to be shipwrecked, to be stranded. And Paul says it was nothing more than garbage to me. Nothing more than garbage. Paul talks about his reason for counting all losses. We look at the next verse there in the last part of 8 and the first part of 9. He says, so that I may gain Christ. I counted all rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.11 says. Consider ourselves to be dead to sin. But not just dead to sin, but alive in God. In Christ Jesus. Again, the doctrine of the union with Christ. Paul speaks again about being in Christ in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing to condemn us when we're in Christ. See, when we're saved, when we're born again, when we're converted, whatever terminology you want to place on that transaction, that transition that happens in our lives, that we're placed in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, that our name's written in the Lamb's book of life. Then when we look at these things, there's nothing. Nothing we can do to remove ourselves from Christ, there's nothing that any supernatural forces can do. There's nothing that Satan himself can do to remove us from being in Christ. That's why Paul counted it all loss. That's why those things that seemed so valuable at one time seemed like rubbish. We also see not just the reason, but the description in the latter part of 9. He says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, Christ's imputed righteousness. Earlier we'd read when Paul saying in the first part of chapter 3, he says, righteousness according to the law. I was perfect. 
Now Paul says, I don't want that righteousness. I don't want to work every day to get up to try and be good enough, to try and be perfect. And we're only ever perfect in our own eyes. For those of us that are married, if you don't think you have flaws, just ask the person that lives with you a little while. You know, they've got a running list of them. I know that. But just this idea of the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Christ's very own righteousness that he earned by fulfilling all the law. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm able to read fairly well. I'm able to mentally think decently. I cannot comprehend that I am the righteousness of God. But when I do comprehend that I am in Christ, seated with him in the heavenlies, as Paul writes elsewhere, then I begin to understand it never was about my ability to be righteous. It was about what Christ has done for us, what we talked about Sunday, the resurrection. Romans 10.4 states this, For Christ is the end of the law for the righteousness to everyone who believes. That we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. That's why Paul says that he has forfeited those things. And what's the end result of this? Verse 10, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, First, he talks about knowing him, this experiential power. I have a quote from Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon is a late 1700s, early 1800s pastor. He was actually at Trinity Church in Cambridge, England, titled The Vicar. For 54 years, he was the pastor of this church. Lived to be 77 years old. Simeon writes this. What it is to know Christ as exercising the power is not speculative knowledge that is here spoken of, but a knowledge that is practical and experiential, that enters into the very essence of true and vital religion. To know Christ as the apostle desired to know him, we must have such views of him in his risen state as shall operate. Then he goes on to mention three views. It confer to confirm our faith, to animate our hope, to sanctify and transform our soul. Those were longer paragraphs, just to get that part. But Simmons talked about it something that we know, that we see this change. That's the result of it. It says not only to know him, but it says to know the power of his resurrection. This power of the resurrection, what is the power of the resurrection. And we could describe that in many ways, but one, it's a raising up power. That's what a resurrection is, to bring someone up from the dead. Colossians 3.1 says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If we've been raised up, then our goal and our ambition is to seek the things above where Christ is. If we've been part of this resurrection, if we've been raised up with Christ, if we're experiencing this resurrection power, 
It's continually having our minds and our souls and our hearts raised up to think about these things. It's a transforming power. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. That we're dead in our trespasses and sin and this baptism, not water baptism, but this spiritual baptizing us into Christ's death. When Christ was raised from the dead, we were raised with him. That we, might not walk, that we might walk in this newness of life. Not only transformation power, it's life-giving power. Ephesians 2, 5 through 6. Even when we're dead in our transgressions, made alive together with Christ, by grace we've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where we are. Not physically. That's where we are spiritually. That we're in Christ and that we're seated with him in the heavenly places. If you want something to help your struggles with sin, just meditate on that a while when you're having thought struggles or actions or other things. That's where we are. Life-giving power. This power of the resurrection is what we've been giving to live and to operate. Peter says we've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. God has not shorted us of anything we need to pursue hard after Him. It's just sometimes the treasure of Christ is not really the treasure of our heart. It's not the one thing that really excites us. It's not the one thing that pushes us on. So I begin to study through this passage and where the Lord's been working in my life lately of wanting to be more godly, more holy. We're also, Lena and I, planning a trip. We've been married 40 years this June. I'm thankful for that. And we've been working on this trip, and I'm kind of the computer guy at home, so I've been typing everything I can type about the state of Maine and finding places. You know, I'm pretty impressed with how intellectual I am about the state of Maine. I mean, I can name about every city on the coast. I can tell you where the good lobster pounds are. That's what they call the place that holds the lobster where they serve. I can tell you what, you know, some of the lookout points are, where the whale watching is, where you leave. I mean, I've got this vast amount of knowledge in the last two to three weeks of Maine, and all that's done for me has helped me to realize if I was that ambitious to know more of Christ, is it not available? All we have to do is apply ourselves. He's given us all things. He's made it all available through his word and through his spirit. How vast is our knowledge of him? How deep is our love for him? It'll run as deep as you will apply yourself to obtain it. The power of the resurrection. Then he says, and he also wants to take part in the fellowship of his sufferings. I mentioned Charles Simeon earlier. I use this quote. I have his set of commentaries. I've never really researched him. I began to look up more things about Charles Simeon. I run across this one site that had wrote a small biography on him. Charles Simeon, I mentioned to you that he was the pastor, the vicar there at, at Trinity Church in Cambridge. He he first was a student and studying. He was not a believer. He was unconverted, going to a Christian religious type school. Became converted through just a small, simple passage at some other place. Never married. 
decided as he began to teach at Cambridge, walking there one day, saw this small church and said, wouldn't it be grand if the Lord would let me pastor that church and still be a part of the university? And his dad was an influential doctor and helped out by talking to someone at the top and they assigned him to that church. They assigned him to that church and he stayed there 54 years. See, but the problem is when we talk about the fellowship of his suffering, for the first 30 years, the people didn't want him. For the first several years, see, they had gates on their pews. They locked the pews and they locked everyone out and they stayed at home. And Simeon took his own money and bought benches and chairs and put them there in the aisles so people could come and hear him preach. And they called them the church guards. I would assume it was somebody in authority and responsibility over the area of the church, the structures. They threw him in the garbage. They took the man's belongings and threw him in the garbage. One professor at Cambridge so much didn't want the young students to hear Simeon preach that he scheduled his Greek class on Sunday evening. See, continuously lashing out, Simeon wasn't sin-free. Many times in the article I read that Simeon lost his temper with people and had to repent. But see, Simeon stayed somewhere for the first 20 years. They were extremely hateful to him. Then they became somewhat nicer, if you want to call it nicer, for the next 10. Then in his 30th year, they began to attend his preaching. So for 30 years, at a church, the man was unwanted. But he pressed forward for the higher calling. See, Simeon understood the fellowship of his sufferings. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24, it says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for, our, for your sake. And in my flesh I do share on my behalf of his body, which is the church, in the filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. 2 Corinthians 4.10 says, Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that in the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we'd no longer be slaves to sin. See, when God saved us, when we become children of God, his intentions was never for us to have an easy life. Many of us do have good lives. But the scripture talks about through many trials and tribulations that you'll enter into the kingdom of heaven. No one likes comfort any more than me. No one likes things to go his way any more than me. But the Lord is graciously teaching me the power of the resurrection is not where everyone likes you. The fellowship of his sufferings is not where everything goes your way. But the Lord is carrying us on this journey, carrying us to a home in the heavens that he has prepared for us, through a path that he has foreordained for us. Why is it? It's the final objective in verse 11. In order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. In order that I may attain all of this that Paul says comes down to this sentence, the end of the sentence here in verse 11. All of this in order that I, and we can transpose the word in there, we may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You know, there's not a lot to be said here at the end. Just looking at Paul's words and what he said about this, that's his goal. That's what he's headed for. Romans 6, 5, and 6 says, 
For if we have become united with him in his likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So what's the application tonight for these passages? I believe it's simply this. To examine ourselves and ask us the one simple question. Are we wanting to obtain the resurrection from the dead? Paul made the path very clear. He lived out the example before us. Maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you've continued to come week after week and you've kept in God at arm's length that you've pushed back on some things. Say next time. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe you should reconsider those things. Maybe today would be the day of salvation. Maybe you're like me. I seem to open my mouth to change feet sometimes. Maybe there's some repentance needed in your life to repent before others. See, we're one body fit jointly together. And the scripture tells us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I feel like many times I keep us pretty flat. Self-examination is a good thing. Repentance is a joyful thing. See, for it brings us back in the right alignment with our Father. Maybe finally we're just at the point that you say, I don't feel there's anything in my life to repent of at the moment. Maybe then we just need to rejoice in the resurrection. Not some certain Sunday in the spring, but every day when we get up that Christ has obtained for us an eternal life that we could not obtain for ourselves. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful. Father, for all that you do in making us yours, and Lord, that you do to keep us to be yours. Lord, left ourselves, we would self-destruct. So God, we give you great praise for what you showed us tonight through your word. Lord, help us not to cling tightly those things that you give us in this world that's passing away. Lord, let us cling to Christ that we may know him, this surpassing greatness of the knowledge of him. So, Father, we commit to you tonight, Lord, all that's been said, that, God, you would let your word go forth and do what you've desired for it to do. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a good evening.